All right, so the Yankees avoided a, a devastating defeat. Uh, what would have been a devastating defeat on Sunday and Easter Sunday would have put them on a three-game losing streak, reeling as they head to Fenway for the first time this season. And it will be the only time they head there uh, between now and the first weekend of August. But they'll see uh, the Red Sox. They'll go up to Boston with a, with a nice one-game lead in the division. And joining me today to talk Yankees-Red Sox with the Yankees heading to Fenway is Danny Picard. Uh, you can hear his uh, podcast, I'm Just Saying, with Danny Picard on iTunes. You can download it on iTunes. And also hear him on WEI in Boston. Dan, how's it going today? It's going well, man. How are you? I'm doing well. I, uh, you know, I'm going up to Boston this week for the series and, and looking at tickets and going back to, you know, probably like the old five or six days right after the disaster of 2004. I remember, you know, you look at tickets to go to Yankees Red Sox games in Fenway and if you're not spending at least $120, that'll get you in the back row of one of those right field grandstands. But it seems like the prices have dropped significantly over the last year or so, even though they're coming off the world championship. Have the Red Sox taken a backseat to the Bruins in the city? Um, I do think that playoff hockey now is people right now are more fired up about that. The expectations for this Bruins team is, is, you know, that there could be another Stanley Cup this year. So, you know, since, since they won the cup in 2011, anytime you get around April, May, June, you know, Bruins playoff games, if, you know, they're still playing that late by, by late May or June, you know, they, they have taken really the priority of this city. Uh, around the springtime. So, yeah, I mean, Yankees, Red Sox is always big to me, but I, I think the reason you see that with the ticket prices is probably because right now the hottest ticket in town is being at the TV Garden for the Bruins playoff games. But, but even when they're not home, like the next couple of games they're going to be in Detroit, the hottest ticket in town might be on the couch. Uh, watching the Bruins playoff games rather than uh, spending money to go to Fenway, even for Red Sox Yankees. Well, coming off the World Series win, uh, the improbable run last year, the Red Sox off to a slow start here, and they've been banged up in the way that the Yankees were banged up early last season, and they continue to be banged up through the entire season. Are you worried about the health of the team right now? You know, just 20 games in, are you worried about them long term, or you think things will start to come together here now that they've got a few weeks under their belt? Well, we're expecting Shane Victorino to get back, I think, later this week. Uh, he has a couple uh, minor league appearances. And, um, you know, I think they dodged a couple bullets with Fedroya and Yui Hara. Those guys have returned after missing only a couple of days the last, you know, last week. And I actually, you know, they, they dodged another bullet last, uh, a couple, you know, Mike Napoli taking a ball off the knee um in that game the other night so he gets up from that he stays in the game he actually played on marathon monday as well so they got that bullet i mean they have injury issues obviously but at the same time i i do think that once we get going into may and june this pitching staff it's really about the starting rotation staying healthy if this rotation can stay healthy we know what they're capable of doing and if they stay healthy and they can pitch like they're capable of pitching, then I think they're going to be able to, even in times of struggle offensively like we've seen from this Red Sox team, I think they'll keep them in a race at the top of the division or the wild card. So I'm not too concerned about the injuries right now. I think the time to be concerned would be if, you know, there's a like Clay Buckholz hasn't been pitching well. And he actually, in this Samaritan Monday game, uh, he got lit up and his velocity is not there. You know, if, if if he goes down for an extended period of time, or even John Lackey's got lit up now the last couple of stops, if there seems to be an injury there, if there's an injury in the rotation, then you, you're concerned and you worry. But right now, uh, no, I'm not too concerned about anything. 
Well, you mentioned you know dodging the injuries uh, with Pedroia, with Napoli, and that you know grotesque picture of what happened to his finger last week. And uh, with the Yankees, you know, they've stayed relatively healthy. Teixeira hit the DL for a couple weeks, which um, you know it was actually a pleasant sight for you know myself and other Yankees fans. And the team just went along without him, like uh, you know business as usual, since he's not really a piece of this team as he was three, four, five years ago. But uh, Jacoby Ellsbury, a guy who you know, I was adamantly against them signing. I told you about it. I thought you know they lowballed and sort of screwed over Cano, ended up giving most of that money to Ellsbury, a player that they didn't really need since they already had Gardner and they already had Soriano and they were looking at Beltran, looking at Chu, they had Ichiro. It just didn't make sense. And, you know, Ellsbury has been great for the Yankees so far. Uh, He's done everything to, you know, sort of, you know, get me to root for him, get me to like him. Uh, You know, if he keeps hitting the way he he does, then I guess I won't have any real reason to. But when you look at the top of that Red Sox order, you know, I thought they could afford to lose him. I still think they can, but, you know, he really was such a big piece of the top of that order and and going through the top of that order with him, with Pedroia, with Ortiz, with Napoli. And it just seems to me like, you know, now that I watch this Boston team, even though it's only a few weeks, even though it's a small sample size, it seems like they really do miss him at the top and they really haven't, you know, been able to find that leadoff guy to fill that role. Yeah, that's, it certainly is a problem. Uh, I, there's no doubt right now they miss Ellsbury in that leadoff spot. I mean, they've shuffled around. We've seen Pedroia there. We've seen Nava there. We've even seen Johnny Gomes there. Um, we've seen Sizemore there. Though I, I, I don't think that I don't think that they want to keep Sizemore in that spot for now. Uh, I think they'd like to see him uh, maybe still in the middle, of, you know, to, to the back of the order only because uh, you know he hasn't played. Uh, in, in such a long time that I think they want to let him get in a groove where there maybe isn't as much pressure. And that leadoff every day for the Boston Red Sox isn't really the place to do that. Uh, I also, we also have to, you know, see that they, they've been missing Shane Victorino. And he was a guy at the top of this order last year, you know, not as a leadoff guy, but uh, the number two guy most of the year that, you know, helped his team do damage offensively. And he hasn't been around. I think that they probably expect him to jump into that spot regularly when he does get back, or at least maybe switch off uh, with a left-hand hitter in that spot. But also, I think for right now, while Jackie Bradley Jr. isn't somebody that's ready for that spot, and he has some things to work on offensively, he's not going anywhere. He, Or at least, in my opinion, he shouldn't go back down to the minor leagues. We see what he does defensively. Uh, he's going to be the everyday center fielder for this team, I think, even when Victorino gets back and they need to make a move on the roster. I don't think Jackie Bradley Jr. is going anywhere, or at least he shouldn't. Right now, he's got some things to work on offensively, but I don't rule out. I mean, I think they're, just, they're building him to try to be that uh, leadoff hitter. It might not happen by June. It might not happen by July. It might not happen this season. But I think they certainly expect it by next year. And, you know, if they can – get him to maybe raise the average or even the on-base. Uh, you know, he has had some big hits, and you know, he's had some big walks. But there's, to me, there's too many inconsistencies with his offensive game to put him in the leadoff spot right now. Uh, but the only way to bring him up and to give him a shot at that would be to not have brought Jacoby Ellsbury back. And they didn't. And right now they're struggling to replace him at the top You know, of that lineup. But I think eventually – before this season's over, and, and even maybe by the All-Star break, they're going to find a guy to do that. 
Well, with Ellsbury, he came to the Yankees, you expect him to hit leadoff, and then they put Jeter at second, even though Jeter you know, spent a lot of his career being a leadoff hitter. And they've also got Brett Gardner, who either seems to hit leadoff or he seems to hit ninth. Um, on Sunday, he hit seventh, which was a little odd. But you know, they sort of have three guys that could plug into that hole, and Ellsbury went to share and went down to sort of lengthen the lineup, became the number three hitter, which is a little weird because of the, you know, the Yankees of the last decade or at least you know, 10, 12 years, that three spot has either been you know, Giambi in his prime or Tino Martinez or Paul O'Neill or Sheffield or Matsui or one of these big bats and to see Ellsbury there was a little weird just because you know as Yankee fans I'm not used to that but then you know when I look at the Red Sox what they've done over the last few years you'd see Pedroia in the three spot a lot of times and you know it just seems to me like Boston you know they always do these quirky things with their lineup and it seems to work out I mean a couple a couple games ago I believe it was in the Yankee series they had Johnny Gomes in the leadoff spot so it seems like John Farrell is really not scared to try anything. No he's not but at some point you know, you'd like some consistency to it. I mean, I don't ever, I don't want to see Johnny Gomes in the Leon spot. <laughs> I mean, that, that's not something that I want to see. And I, I think that going into the season, knowing they weren't going to have Ellsbury and not knowing that Bradley would even be, Bradley Jr. would even be in, on the team, I think they expected, you know, when they thought Victorino would be healthy, they expected Victorino to lead off when there was a left-handed pitcher on the mound. Um, and when there was a right-handed pitcher, uh, to lead off with Nava, but Nava struggled. He just, he's looked awful at the plate. As some people have said when Victorino gets back, maybe they, they send Nava back down to the minor leagues. I mean, me personally, I, I, I think that they should stick with Nava, but if they want him to work on some things and they don't want to trade Kopp, maybe that would be, it's obviously a better move than sending Jackie Bradley Jr. down. But, you know, this is a guy that, that I think they expected to, to be a major factor at the top of this order. And so with that, they they sort of expected to move it around, I think, in, in the early goings of the season. Um, but, I mean, you can't do this all year, in my opinion. And I do think while right now he is switching things around, you know, it's coming to a point where when Victorino gets back, maybe we're just going to see Victorino, the everyday leadoff guy, Victorino, Pedroia, and Ortiz, those are your top three. I, and to be honest, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but I, I think right now it's too soon to have Sizemore every day in that spot. It's too soon to have Jackie Bradley Jr. every day into that spot. I mean, at, at some point, one of those two guys might be in that spot this season every day. But right now they're not ready for it. I don't ever want to see Gomes there. Novice struggling. Uh, so I think if they want to get some consistency, it'll probably be when Victorino gets back. Well, I remember talking to you about uh, a little over two years ago when the Yankees traded Jesus Montero for Michael Pineda. You know, you were as big on Pineda as any Yankees fan. You ranted and raved about what a great deal the Yankees made and, you know, going out and getting this kid. And then he never ends up pitching for them. And it got to the point where we thought he never might pitch for them ever, maybe never even step on a major league mound again. But he's been pretty much their best starter at this point. I mean, you can make a case for Tanaka as well. Uh, He's had, you know, one start where he gave up three runs, but they all came in the first thing. He settled down. But Pineda's pretty much been shut down every inning um, of every start so far this season. And he'll face uh, John Lackey in the second game of the series. And going back to when he faced Boston, and uh, you know, last time at the stadium, and there was a lot to do and a lot made of uh, what was on his hand, whether it was dirt, like he said, whether it was pine tar. It seemed like it was a lot, uh, you know, 
it was a lot to do from the media rather than the players because players across baseball didn't seem to care. And I know with you going back to last year, breaking down uh, the bullfrog sunscreen uh, that Clay Buckholz used and, and whatever he puts in his greasy hair. But, you know, what is what was the perspective in Boston? I know, you know, some fans are going to be angry because they just felt like the Red Sox lost and were cheated because of what was going on. But there wasn't one player in baseball that seemed to speak out against it. It just seemed to be the media types. And, you know, it's not like guys in Boston haven't done it as well. And John Farrell didn't really seem to care about it. Yeah, and it's not. Obviously, if nobody said anything, it's it's something that goes both ways. So, we're, you know, both sides are doing it. I think it, it, as the pitchers will explain to you, I mean, you could have taken, it, you know, it's funny because Clay Buckholz was the guy on the other side of the mound that night when Pineda <laughs> had the, uh, the pine tar all over his hands. And we know about Buckholz last year, like you said, with the bullfrog sunscreen. Side note, which is funny you mention that, because today somebody reached out to me from bullfrog sunscreen about some type of, I don't know, partnership or something. <laughs> they, I, I, because they, I did something on YouTube. Yeah, I remember you, you, with, you threw pitches with it on your hand. Yes, and it was about a year ago. And somebody today emailed me about some type of partnership with Bullfrog Sunscreen. I don't know what they want me to do, um, but we'll, you know, we'll see. I mean, maybe they want me to do something. Maybe you're going to be a, a spokesman ball. on commercials or something. Uh, a wiffle ball time or something. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I can tell you through my experiment that Bullfrog Sunscreen works to give you a much better grip. <laughs> um, you know, does it make you a better pitcher? I mean, it remains to be seen because – how many pitches, you know, use something to get a grip. I, I, I'm assuming that a lot do. I think that the worst part about it was, and I think what people were, were upset about, was that Canada acted like a complete clown by putting <laughs> the, the, the pine top on the bottom of his throwing hand. I mean, you said, don't do that, because then they showed it on his wrist, on his, or his, excuse me, his, his, his left forearm, his, his non-pitching hand forearm. And if he never had it on his throwing hand, they would have never seen it on his wrist. So, I mean, all he had to do was not be so stupid about it and so obvious, and we wouldn't even be talking about any of this. So um, I don't think it's that big a deal. I, I mean, the biggest deal was, I think, when the players figured out that everybody knew about it and it was on TV, I honestly think the players probably said, are you kidding me? Now we got to answer questions about this after the game. Nobody wants to talk about that. It, it, it's, it's part of baseball players getting some sort of edge. I think David Ortiz said it best. He said, hey, hitters use pine tar to, to get a better grip. I mean, it's just, it's out there. And I think I heard somebody say um, last week, I think it was Al Leiter said um, something along the lines of, you know, if you don't want the pitchers to get a grip on the baseball, why is there a rosin bag for you? Yeah, I exactly. mean, it's it just it, getting a grip on the baseball. And, and hitters will tell you, we don't want a ball sailing up at our heads at 93, 94 miles an hour. So I don't think I don't think it's that big a deal. But um, we'll see where this bullfrog sunscreen partnership goes. That could be a big deal. <laughs> well, the, thing, the thing with Pineda is going into the season, you know, he was in a competition to, to join the rotation because what's happened the last two years. And he, he won the number five spot over David Phelps and Vidal Nuno, who are uh, in the bullpen. And now Nuno looks like he's going to take Nova's spot because he's going to be out for the season. But uh, Pineda so far this season, you know, three starts. He's gone six innings every time. Um, they're sort of trying to limit his pitch count. The highest he's gone is 94. And the other times are in the 80s. They're going to try to, I guess, build him up and build arm strength. The Yankees always do these nonsensical arm building exercises that never seem to work out because everyone they do this mm-hmm. for ends up getting arm surgery down the road anyway. But, you know, 18 innings, two in runs so far. And for Tanaka, who's you know, 
striking out, it seems like, every single person that comes to the plate. Uh, right now, the Yankees' four and five starters are looks to be their one and two, and, it, and it's CC and guys like Kuroda, the one and two, who you have questions about. But, um, you know, we talked before the season about how the Yankees this year remind me of the Red Sox last year with a lot of question marks in the rotation. They sort of answered them so far through now nearly a month of play. But when you see guys, you know, lined up against the Red Sox a three-game series and you see Pineda and you see Tanaka, do you, do you have that sense of fear that you have to be almost perfect on the opposition side? And, you know, I feel like the Yankees haven't had that in a while with their rotation. So, I mean, the Yankees might feel the same way about going up against Lester tomorrow night. You know, John Lester, he, he battled Chris Sale the other night in Chicago, and, and I called that must-see TV, even though the Stanley Cup playoffs were on. I mean, that was a pitcher's duel. Lester, look, this guy has had some bumps in the road, and they've been consistent bumps in the road the last couple of years, but he finished Lester up very strong. And this year, right now, essentially, you know, he's playing for a contract. So if, if not to say that he wouldn't be motivated anyways, but there's no question about it now. John Lester's motivated, and you can see that when he's pitching. Um, you know, then you got to face Lackey, who I said has been struggling, and then it's Felix Dubron, who actually, surprisingly, even though he does, I don't think he has overwhelming stuff, has been, you know, pretty, pretty good lately, uh, his last couple outings. I, I think that going up against Pineda and Tanaka, Certainly, Tanaka's got what's that? I mean, is it a splitter that that just dips down yeah. and away? I mean, that thing is filthy, right? And 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 I think that you know the Red Sox haven't seen it yet, so they're probably gonna they're gonna struggle. I would take the under if I was a, <laughs> a, a betting man tomorrow night in that one. And then with Pineda, as you mentioned, you know, a, a couple minutes ago, when, when the Yankees got Pineda, I, I thought nobody was talking about it, and I was kind of shocked as to why they weren't talking about it. I thought that Pineda would be the next big thing in the AL East. Now, injuries set him back, but as you're seeing, I think pine taw, no pine taw, uh, this is a, this, he's a big boy that can throw the baseball. And I, I think Yankee fans, if this guy can stay healthy, I think they're going to like him. And maybe he's surprised by this, maybe not, but out of the three, out of the, you know, Tanaka, Pineda, Sabathia, you know, the one guy I'm not too scared of, is Sabathia, and I think that's because you just don't see the velocity. It's just not there. And it's not to say this guy can't learn how to pitch uh, because we know how good he has been in the past uh, or that he can't turn anything around this season, but his velocity just isn't there, and he's not really a scary dude when he's on the mound anymore, in my opinion, because of that. So out of those three guys, I'm more scared of Pineda and Tanaka than I am Sabathia. No, I think that you definitely should be. And I mean, when it comes to CC, you know, Devossi's not there. He hasn't really figured it out yet. I've said all along, you know, his so-called best friend is supposedly Cliff Lee. And he just spent, you know, the last four seasons pitching with Andy Pettit. So you'd think between talking to those two guys, he'd be able to figure out how to pitch with, you know, 87 to 89 from a lefty. But, you know, that still remains to be seen. But when it comes to Lester, you know, he signed that team-friendly deal a few years ago, which he'd under, he never got hurt. So he obviously could have gotten a lot more money on the free agent market. But, you know, hats off to him for taking guaranteed money and not being like a Max Scherzer guy who walks away from $144 million when, you know, at any pitch his, his shoulder could go, you know, right away and he'll never see that money. But... I saw reports the other day about, you know, Lester talking with the team and, and trying to come to terms on an extension. And it seems like he's going to take another team-friendly offer when, you know, he, he looks like he's ready to finally get paid his age 30 season. Well, I mean, it, 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 part of that's on him. I mean, he came out publicly and said, I want to take a hometown discount to stay. I, I, I said it at the time, I think, 
his agent, when he heard this, is probably slamming his head against the wall. <laughs> I mean, this has to be the stupidest thing you could say as somebody who is, you know, 30 years old and is really, uh, when you sign a 30-year-old pitcher who has, as I just mentioned, I mean, with John Lester, the last two seasons before this, even though he finished last year strong, there was a good amount of time there in the dog days of summer where he was terrible and he was consistently terrible. To the point where here in Boston, we were having conversations near the All-Star break as to whether or not Lester, if they get to the playoffs, if he should even be in the rotation, the playoff rotation. I mean, that's how bad it was at times. And the year before that, Bobby Valentine year, a lot of people blame Bobby Valentine. I point a lot of the blame of that season and the failure of that season at John Lester. He was terrible. I mean, this guy just, he, he, it's, he was out in the mound. Everything was flat. He didn't have velocity. Uh, he was changing things. He was mad at umps. I mean, this has been, he has had signs recently of being a very bad pitcher, but he's also had signs of being a, a very dominant pitcher, which I think you've seen that lately. You saw at the end of last year during the championship run, starting the playoffs. You've seen it so far to begin this season. Um, but when you come out and you say, hey, I want to take a hometown discount, I mean, did, did, do you, did he really expect the team then to overwhelm him with the deal? Now, I, I, I don't think that was the last offer the Red Sox are going to make, four years, $72 million or something, which, you know, by the way, I think it's like $18 million a season. So I don't expect that. I don't see that to be really lowballing the guy because he did say he'd take a hometown discount. But I would, you know, if I'm the Red Sox and I get a hometown discount, I'm not giving him any more than five years. And, you know, if it's somewhere around 18 to 20 mil a year, I'm fine with that too. In fact, if I'm the Red Sox, I would overpay him per year, but I wouldn't give him more than five years, not at 30 years old. So, I mean, John Lester, I don't know what he expects when he comes out and he says, hey, I'm going to take a hometown discount. Uh, because to me, hometown discount is more of a years thing than a money thing. Yeah, that, that, that offer the Red Sox made, it's not great, but I don't think it's their final offer. I think they're playing the game. It's a negotiation. They'll talk again. And I think they're actually testing to see, hey, Lester said he wants to stay, hometown discount. How, let's see how much he wants to stay. Let's test this out. I mean, it's a business at the end of the day. I think business will get done before he leaves. And like I said earlier, it isn't the worst thing in the world to have John Lester pitching on a contract here. It's not. No, it's definitely not. And when you go back to, you know, the period from, you know, 2008 to 2011, he was that guy where, he, you know, he wasn't winning uh, Cy Young Awards or MVP Awards, like a guy like Verlander. But when he was scheduled to face the Yankees, you know, I just assume, you know, you're going to be lucky if you get one or two runs off this guy. So your pitcher had to be basically perfect. And he, I would say, was, you know, the pitcher I most feared the Yankees facing at any given point in a season for those few years there. And then, like you said, he sort of, you know, fell apart, especially during the Bobby Valentine year. And and I just never really understood why what happened going down the stretch and in, you know, 2011 between him and Beck and then what happened during the Bobby Valentine season. And he bounced back and had a great year last year. Not great like he used to have, but it just never made sense to me how this guy could, you know, fall apart and seem to lose it so quickly and then regain it just like that. No, and I think going back to when he struggled, I mean, one thing I always looked at was he fell in love with his, with his cut fastball, which used to be a great pitch, down and in to right-handed hitters, and it was unhittable. Um, but he left it flat. It was out over the plate. And also his velocity on his regular fastball w- was down. And, you know, when his velocity on his regular fastball is down and the velocity on his cut fastball is only one or two miles per hour less than his regular fastball, it turns out to not be as devastating of a pitch. Um, I think 
part of the reason is the change in velocity with it too. But he's done things to manage it. He he he's used his curveball more lately. I wish he would use it even more than than he has. Um, he's also taken that cutter and against right-handed hitters, you know, instead of falling in love with having to go down and in to a right-handed hitter with the cutter, he's learned. You saw this in the playoffs. He's learned to take that cutter, maybe take a little bit off it, and try to paint back door, outside corner, low and outside on the right-handed hitter. And that has worked for him as well. But I also think, too, his velocity's gone up. And, you know, for whatever reason that may be, I, I couldn't tell you. But that is certainly a part of it as well. When he was struggling, his velocity was down, and I think he was stubborn with some of his pitches. Um, but he worked through it, and here he is right now. And, again, he's, he's playing for something. So, uh, I expect them to keep playing, and I do expect them to actually agree to a deal at some point late in the season. Well, the, the good thing I like about when you do your podcast, I'm just saying, which is on iTunes, you know, you always give that, that opening monologue, the, sort of the State of the Union each day. And, you know, I haven't heard your take yet on the uh, on the replay system and what's going on in baseball now uh. through a few weeks. I wanted replay in baseball. I thought it was going to be good. I wasn't really sure how it was going to work out. You know, I, obviously they're going to try to adapt uh, something that, you know, the NFL sort of done with these challenges and it just didn't make a lot of sense to me when they came out with the rules that, you know, you get a challenge, but if you were right, you get another one, but then you lose them. And that the ch- you know the umps could challenge anything from the seventh inning on as if the seventh inning on was more important than, you know, the first through six innings, which didn't make a lot of sense. But now baseball's gone and changed, you know, the rule on the transfer play. Um, I, I, you know, I saw last week a bunch of videos of it costing teams in games. It cost the Yankees yesterday. almost cost them the game because of a play at second base. But, you know, now they're changing the rules. Uh, the umpires don't seem to be on the same page with the managers. You don't seem to be on the same page with the umpires making decisions in New York. So after now just 20 games of this, you know, a mere three weeks, what's your take here on what the MLB's done with the replay and review system? Uh, this my take's the same as I had going into the season before we even saw this. Uh, it's terrible. It's stupid. It's the dumbest thing the sport could do. I mean, you have people sitting in a centralized replay system in New York City, and there are things that they could be watching during that and see that the call's wrong, but they say, hey, you know what, we can't do anything about it because that's not reviewable. Or it's not the seventh inning yet, and the manager doesn't have any more challenges. Um, this is just, it, it, you're supposed to, if you wanted to bring instant replay in to review things other than home runs, the, the purpose of it shouldn't be to get most of the calls or some of the calls right. The purpose should be to get all of the calls right. I don't agree with any type of replay, even for home runs, because I can remember doing my webcast back in 2007, 2008, and we were talking about this whole home run review possibility, and I can remember exactly my stance then. I said, believe me. I didn't want it because once you allow instant replay for home runs, you're going to open the door someday down the road for somebody to say, hey, if we're going to take time out to review home runs and get that right, let's get uh, everything. Let's get some other things right. And I think that would slow the game down. Is the biggest issue slowing the game down? Well, sometimes. Uh, but also it's you're slowing the game down and you're not necessarily, you're not getting everything right. Or Sometimes the rules of the replay don't even allow you to review something that you could probably get right, which is pretty obvious to, uh, to change. It's a stupid system. I think if you want to keep replay in, I think you need to utilize that centralized you know, office or whatever they're calling it in New York City, get a couple bodies to watch each, to stand by a TV. Uh, they, you know, they, they get to watch one. Your duty is watch one game. Here's the game you have. Get another two guys. Here's the game you have. And then for every ballpark, you have an umpire that's sitting in one of the dugouts near a phone. And if there's a close call, 
whoever's watching that game in the replay system communicates with that person quick and says, run out of the field and tell them to slow the game down. We're watching this one play. And you just do and, – and you know what? It should take 30 seconds. But we have this challenge system. It's just – it's stupid, and it's not working. And I don't know that they're going to get rid of it. Um, I don't know what they're going to do. But I just – I don't understand. I don't understand why there are only some things you can review and some things you can't. And some innings managers can challenge, and some innings they can't. And some innings the young can challenge, and some innings he can't. It's it's all so very stupid to me. Um, so that's that's how I feel about it. I hate it. Well, the other thing with it, it's like it almost seems like you know when the NFL games when there's catches or you know if guys is feeding bounds, is it a touchdown? It almost seems like whenever they go to the booth, you never know what the answer is going to come back. You know, some sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. But really, I have no clue when when they decide is a catch or what is it. And I've been surprised times, and I have it. Um, especially going back to that Giants-Packers playoff game a couple of years ago when they had like two atrocious calls on, on fumbles mm-hmm. and one of them almost changed the entire game. But, you know, it's sort of like what the NHL's done with the kicking motion. You never know if they're going to call, you know, the guy kicked the puck in, if he didn't, what did he, was he trying to stop, did he redirect it? And I never thought it could get that way with baseball because it seems so, you know, black and white, you know, is the guy out, is he safe, is it a catch, is it not? But it's gotten to that point now where when they go and they put those headsets out, you know, I have no idea what the ruling's going to be when they come back. Yeah, it, it's mostly what the transfer plays and even, you know, the guy at first base, is the ball in the glove or what's it out? Is it in the glove? Is it when it hits the back of the glove or when it <laughs> enters the glove? I mean, to be honest, I'm talking to you right now, I don't even know the answer to that question. <laughs> well, I've heard that, you know, I, saw... I, ne- I I never even think we'd be asking that question. So. <laughs> well, I think the craziest thing about the whole thing is not only that, you know, they're not getting calls right. They, I mean, that play, you know, with Dean Anna, you know, having, having, uh, being tagged on the double and then coming off oh, the that's base. The, that was so stupid. That was, and you know what? And I said this right after. I, I said, regard, all right, he came off the bag a little bit. And, and if you want to be literal about it, oh, he literally, did he literally tag him when he was off the bag? Then yeah, that's an out. But, are we really going to – like, I don't know that I want to watch a baseball game or live in a world <laughs> in which that would be an out. I mean, every time somebody is safe at second, you look up at the ump and say, time. After he's ruled safe, you look at the ump and say, can I get time? Um, calls time. He gets off He gets off the bag. Bogots kept his glove on Dean Anna, and, and he just held it there when he was ruled safe. To me, once you're ruled safe and you're about to get up off the ground – you shouldn't be able to keep the tag on and be called out. I mean, this isn't, this isn't, you know, uh, Sandlot baseball at M Street Park. I mean, it's just, it, that can't happen. I don't want to live in a world where that actually would be an out if you review it. The fact that Farrell would even review that to me, or, or they did review it, it's just, again, it's so stupid that he should, you know, I, I, I'm glad they didn't, they didn't overturn that call, right? There's been so no, many. No, they, they said they didn't now. have a, they said they didn't have a view of it when, you know, everyone watching well, on Yes or Fox or Nesson seemed to have a view of it. Well, we had a view of it, but did you, do you really want that to be No, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's more one of those things where, you know, if, if I'm a fan, you know, yeah, you want the guy out, you don't want a guy in scoring position, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it is a ticky-tack thing. It's like the neighborhood yeah. play, and it's almost like, well, don't give up a double. You don't have to worry about the guy being called out a second. Yeah, it's, it's stupid. I don't want, I'm glad he wasn't out. And, you know, it just goes into the review. I mean, we're, I mean, there was a, there was a play on Friday night here at Fenway against the Orioles. First pitch of the game, ball down the left field line. It was clear that it was foul. It bounced to the left of the truck. I mean, to me, it wasn't even close. 
and they review it, and they say it's inconclusive because they think it might have touched a piece of the chalk. It's pretty clear it didn't touch the chalk. <laughs> so I don't know what happened. But, I, I mean, it's, the insert replay is not working. I wish they would get rid of it. They're not going to. And I think until they make, you know, if they can keep it in, make everything reviewable and just go with the centralized system, don't have challenges. It's just so corny when a manager comes out and he keeps looking into the dugout to see if, you know, somebody's popping out to say, oh, yeah, make sure now you can challenge it because we just watched the replay of it. It's just so stupid. It just makes no sense to me. I just hope they get rid of it, but they probably won't. No, I, I think, you know, they're going to try to fine-tune it and make it better in some way. But, yeah, like you said, you know, it is ridiculous when the manager comes out and he has his back turned and he's looking into the dugout hoping that, you know, they'll turn around and they'll get the play right. But yeah. And I'm not one of these, you know, guys who thinks that baseball is too long. I mean, there's innings for a reason. There's no clock for a reason. It just seems like, you know, the game has a flow to it. It has a certain thing to it. And those people that want the game shortened, you know, they want things shortened. And they don't need to watch baseball. They don't need to be baseball who, fans. And to me, yeah, you know, who are these? Who these people that want seven inning games. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I see a headline for a story about seven inning games, and I wonder if I'm even on earth. I mean, is this even like, you know, what is going on here? I, why do people, where did we get this idea of seven inning games? Like, are we, are we all on the same planet? This is, that, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in sports is somebody wanting to change baseball. It's one thing wanting to change certain things in baseball. If you want to change baseball from nine innings to seven innings, you gotta find. You gotta. You just gotta find a hobby or something. You gotta find <laughs> something else to do. I, I don't know what to tell you. Well, that's thing, one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Yeah, and the thing with the time is, you know, I don't care if the umps take. You know, if they people are like, oh my god, that challenge took three minutes and forty five seconds. You know, it's like who? I don't care if it takes twenty minutes as long as they get the call right. You know, I just don't want to see them come back and and overturn a call that's wrong or make the wrong decision. If they're going to take their time and look at it, they, I don't care if it's right as long as it's right because you know eventually one of these replays is going to have a huge impact. And you know, you go back in time and. Obviously, the Yankees dynasty was built on a home run that never actually went over the fence. The kid Jeffrey Mayer hauled it in, and when they won the World Series in 2009, and then that Joe Mauer ball, you know, I was at that game, and I couldn't really see it, but it went fair, and they called it foul, and when the base is loaded, and that would have changed that whole series, but, you know, the human element has a major role in baseball. It still should have it, because it's part of the game. It's part of the history, even mm -hmm. if it's right sometimes and wrong others, but, you know, as long as they're going to get the call right, I don't really care how much time they take to look at it. Just make sure, you know, you're 100% certain about it. Yeah, and, you know, if I see on TV one more time, you know, the headline coming up on the left side of the screen, seven-inning game, <laughs> you know, I just I change the channel. I mean, I don't know why this is a headline. I don't know why it's a story. I hope it never comes up again. Um, I, I just hope we if – we, if nothing happens with replay, I just hope we can get, get past the potential seven-inning game because that's just not going to happen. All right, Dan. Well, we got a good series ahead of us here. It's the last time these two right. teams will play for two months until uh, the Red Sox come back to New York in June. So you get seven games out of the way, and they don't play for, it seems like, you know, half the summer. But uh, we got Tanaka Lester, Pineda Lackey, and the lefties, uh, CC and Dubronco. And so some good matchups. Uh, hopefully it's a good series, and uh, maybe I'll see you up at Fenway. Yeah, and I mean, that's probably a long shot for your Rangers, but maybe, maybe – they could get to the Eastern Conference Finals to play the <laughs> Well, play. actually, you know, that brings up a good point. I didn't even ask you about that. And, you know, I usually get a couple hockey questions. And so, I mean, after that first, that one, that game one loss, obviously it's only one nothing, and it's a dad suit goal with three minutes left, so there's not much you could do about that. But, you know, were you down on the Bruins after that game? No. No. And people are nuts. I mean, I don't <laughs> know what they want. You know, they people are throwing Suka Rask under the bus. I heard, you know, 
you tune into something for, for two minutes and you hear a, a caller on a show talk to you today after they win game two, still looking back at game one and the goal that Datsuk scored uh, against Tukarask. I mean, if you think that Datsuk didn't know what he was doing with that puck, then you're out of your mind. You've never seen Datsuk play, and you certainly didn't watch how the play got started with Datsuk in the neutral zone in full stride, one hand on his stick, putting a puck behind him up through his legs and starting the rush. I mean, there was a purpose to everything that he did on that play, and if you didn't think that he was looking for a little traffic that he could find a way to get that puck low glove side on Tukarask, You've never watched, you don't know who Dotsuk is, and you don't know that he's one of the best players in the world. He is one of the best players in the world. And I said it after game one, I said, the most frustrating thing might be is that I'm actually not frustrated with the way the Bruins played this game because they played pretty well. Obviously, you need them to score goals, um, and they did that in game two. But I was confident after game one that there would be situations for them where they had more puck possession. They would put some more goals in. They scored four goals in game two. I'm not concerned about the Red Wings because they're not the same Red Wings team that, you know, historically we see in the playoffs. They are banged up. Um, and yes, it's more, maybe more speed than the Bruins. I, I'm hesitant to say even more skill. I know a lot of people have done that, but I just think the Bruins are going to wear them out in this series and, uh, take it in six. Well, I, I, I do agree with you. I picked the Bruins to win it in seven only because, you know, I was hoping they'd go the distance, get a little tired before their second round. But from the Rangers standpoint, you know, I was feeling, you know, nice and high after game one and even the first eight minutes of game two. But uh, I never thought it would be as easy as it should be, especially now with the Rangers. But I still think they'll find a way to get by the Flyers. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I actually wouldn't know how to predict that, that Rangers-Flyers series. But I think that nobody's talking about Pittsburgh. And no. that's a problem because Pittsburgh <laughs> is still, to me, one of the elite teams in this tournament. So um, I actually think it's going to be Bruins-Penguins, and I don't think the Bruins are going to sweep this time. I think they're going to beat them, but I think it's going to be more of a dogfight this time around because the Bruins are dealing with some issues with the flu and even with some injuries with some of their defensemen. So um, I think Bruins-Penguins eat the conference finals. I think Bruins win it, go, that one going the distance. I, I I picked Bruins to win the cup over the Sharks in the finals. San Jose Sharks. This well, is the year like they get that. to the finals. That would be devastating for Joe Thorne. You know, he might that might yeah. be a dagger to his life right there. Well, I mean, everybody, uh, you know, seems to pick the Sharks. You know, most years to to get far in the playoffs, and they always seem to blow it. But I don't hear anybody talking about the Sharks. So maybe this is the time they do it because they usually uh, fold under the pressure. But when nobody's picking them to win, there isn't much pressure. And maybe I, I, that's that's my reasoning because they still are a very good team and have some good leadership and a goaltender who's won a cup. So um, I, that's my prediction: Bruins over the Sharks. Book it. The bees are gonna hoist La Coupe. So you don't you don't seem worried about having to face the Canadians there. No, I mean they're gonna get. They, it's gonna be a dogfight, but I think the Bruins are gonna wear them down, just like they're gonna wear down Detroit. You know these speedy, skilled, finesse teams. You know, they're going to get their goals, and they're going to get a couple wins in each series, but I think ultimately the physicality and the Bruins then to go along with their depth is just going to – it goes a long way in a seven-game series. And, yeah, Canadians will win a couple games against the Bruins in a seven-game series, but they they won't win four. Uh, and mainly because if they if they do win three, that chance for them to win four is going to be at the TD Garden. I, I always feel like when we talk, you know, you're always, you know, you're confident in the Boston teams, but I don't think I've ever heard you this confident with any team in any season. 
No, it, it's just it's this team's even though they're dealing with some some stuff right now. I just think that Tuke is too good. I think Shar is too good. He shuts down other teams' line when they play in their own building. They have the last change, and they have that matchup where Claude's able to look and see what the other team does. And if they put their top line out there, you know, you bet you're behind the Zidane Chara, whether he's just been out in the ice for five minutes straight or not, he's staying out there. And he's the big body that nobody wants to go up against. They win that matchup. It's a game of matchups. The Bruins playing chess matches in the playoffs. They have the depth to do it. Um, they blew it last year, I thought, late in the cup finals. And as long as they don't have any devastating injuries with some of their top players here uh, and don't lose any more guys, I I just I think they're gonna I think they're gonna just wear teams out physically, and I think they're gonna take it. All right, Dan. Well, if the Rangers uh, don't get Lundqvist going, he doesn't steal a few games. We won't be talking hockey unless you know I give you a call about when the Bruins are in the cup or whatever. But maybe uh, you know we might not be looking for a two month stretch here until we talk Yankees Red Sox again. So uh, you know hopefully I'll run into you this weekend up in Boston. All right, now thanks a lot. All right, thanks, Dan.